Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And uh, today we're talking about a certain group of women, women of a certain age that you, you might say. And, and Kristen and I got the idea for this podcast topic when we were researching for our Mama's Boy episode and our Grandmother's episode because... People in our culture, it should come as no surprise, especially if you've listened to our grandmother's episode, that it's very common for women of this certain age, whether that's middle age or slightly older, to just be sort of pushed aside. And so we wanted to take a look at this group of women specifically, but also sort of where this expression even came from. Yeah. And and there is another quote that inspired this podcast, which came from Bossy Pants by Tina Fey, and she wrote, The definition of crazy in show business is a woman who keeps talking even after no one wants to have sex with her anymore. And it gets at the heart of this sort of devaluing that can happen to women as they get older. And so first up, though. Let's talk about just what age is a certain age anyway, and how did this whole women of a certain age phrasing come about? Yeah, there were some great posts that we were reading about this. One was at Gramophobia, and one was for the New York Times by William Sapphire. But they point out that this phrase originated in the 18th century, and the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, defines it as a time when, quote, one is no longer young, but which politeness forbids to be specified too minutely, usually referring to some age between 40 and 60. And it's mostly said of women. And it cites the first use in English in 1754 in Connoisseur magazine. And I believe it was from an anonymous letter that was sent to the magazine, which included, I could not help wishing that some middle term was invented between Miss and Mrs. to be adopted at a certain age by all females not inclined to matrimony. I like that the way these people spoke throughout this whole time period was so euphemistic. Well, and doesn't it have a certain hint of spinsterhood? Oh, yeah. Well, it? Spinsterhood, but also like possibly a fear of women who were outside of sexual norms yes. in general. You mean women who might like other women? <gasps> outside, or not inclined to matrimony. And But it was also used to describe men in its early days. And and still, I mean, there was even a show called Men of a Certain Age starring uh, Ray Romano and the guy from Quantum Leap. And now the guy from uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which apparently is great, but I haven't seen it. But, but uh, a lot of times when it was in ye old days used to describe men, it had more... Uh, of a connotation of esteem and dignity rather than marital status. So, for example, in 1751, there was a letter from the Earl of Chesterfield to his son, who wrote, You would not talk of your pleasures to men of a certain age, gravity, and dignity. They would justly expect from young people a degree of deference and regard. Interesting. I love that gender division. Women of a certain age are spinsters. Men of a certain age are dignified. But all right. So, I mean, speaking of gender, we also have to talk about the French because this same phrase is popping up in the French language around the same time. But it had a wholly separate connotation, much sexier than in English. 
Yeah, there are uh, some of our sources talked about how femme du nage certain, which is the phrase in French. First of all, it can be applied gender neutrally. So again, you have it being talked about to, to women, but also to men. But when it comes to women, it was usually suggestive of an older woman who was teaching a younger man the ways of, mm, how do you say, sex. She was, de- <laughs> she was deflowering a young man. Deflowering a young man. So there, the connotation is much more positive. Yeah. Yeah. It was sort of like, well, you got, uh, you got this uh, older woman. You have a femme du nord chelton who yeah. is wanting to give you a little education. But it still implies, obviously, active sexuality, active sexual interest, as opposed to, even from the earliest stages in English, definitely implying dried up spinster, put her in a closet and forget about her. Exactly. Oh, put her in a closet, man. Uh, William Sapphire, though, writing about it for the New York Times a while back, asserted that it came back into common usage in the U.S. with the 1979 book by psychotherapist Lillian B. Rubin called Women of a Certain Age, The Midlife Search for Self, which in that book in 79... Midlife, the certain age, spanned 35 to 54. But when he interviewed her for this column a number of years later, she talked about how certain age had definitely moved up because we're living longer, we're delaying marriage and childbirth, etc. So certain age, in, in her mind, when she was talking to Sapphire, was closer to, would, would probably be starting around 54 and not 35. Yeah, well, because I was thinking about my own mother in terms of all of this women of a certain age stuff and thinking about how, you know, my mother is so very Southern and adorable and uh, silly and would never, would never call herself a woman of a certain age. Because even though I feel like that is a very Southern thing, it's very euphemistic Southern people. We all use euphemisms all the time. Bless her heart, stuff like that. There's such still a negative old person connotation with that. It hasn't. I feel like we still haven't reached a point where a woman of a certain age is quite as dignified as if we said a man of a certain age. Right. Because, again, it's this whole issue of women aging in our society is a wholly different process in a lot of ways than men aging. And not just because of the biological phenomenon of menopause, like the way that you are treated is is usually quite distinct and uh, I, it seems like today women of a certain age is a euphemism for women over 50 or even over 60 yeah um but what do we really mean about it because clearly there's still this discomfort or or sense of being impolite if you call a woman by her exact age. If she's, you know, over 40, that's when you just start getting fuzzy with the numbers because, oh, well, if you admit that you are 55 or however old you are, then the dominoes are going to fall and all of a sudden you're in the closet with all the other, with all the other women, all the other worn out old gals. And on top of the age factor, there also seems to be the implication in the phrase women of a certain age of Women who have gone through menopause and Mm -hmm. can no longer have children. Yeah. Because when, sure, with women aging, there's the loss of female beauty and that aspect of sexual desirability, but there's also something with that transition into 
infertility as well. Sort of a general insinuation of almost societal uselessness. Exactly. Exactly. Because obviously as men age, they can, they can keep on fathering children, but as women age, it stopped. So then it becomes a question of, well, what, what does that feel like? Because so much of this is discussed in euphemistic terms. I mean, we're even calling it women of a certain age, this episode. But when you talk to women who are in that certain age bracket, mm-hmm. there is one word that comes up over and over and over again, and that is invisible. Yeah, to the point where it's even called the invisible woman syndrome. And it's very well illustrated, as is Tina Fey's quote from Bossy Pants, very well illustrated in two pieces on invisibility that we read, one from Tira Harpaz in Feministing and one from Tracy Nesdely in The Star. And Tracy Nesdely specifically, like, I really felt it when she was writing about, she walked up to these two men at a party and was talking to them and she realized very in this very awful moment that they were essentially humoring her and like couldn't wait to get away from her. And it's that whole attitude of like, why are you still talking? Like you, you are not young. You're not, you don't have that youthful beauty. You're obviously not this young, beautiful, fertile woman anymore. What what are you even doing here? Yeah. And in describing it, uh, she talks about how she had a conversation with a friend and they were talking about age and that invisibility factor. And she says, quote, as older women, we were no longer desirable, no longer perceived as anything but taking up space a younger person could put better use to in the job, in the relationship, in life. And Harpaz echoed a similar sentiment. Yeah, she said that it's made up of these small daily cuts. You're no longer being asked if there's a chance you're pregnant at the doctor's office. The cashier might, you know, ask about if you want a senior discount. That was a huge thing for my mother, a huge thing. Because shortly after she started getting asked by cashiers if she wanted the senior citizen discount, I think she started dyeing her hair blonde. Uh, it suits her. But yeah, she she was not happy about that. Um, but it's this whole thing of like, all of a sudden, you're not being glanced at. You're not being checked out. People on the subway aren't, you know, they don't look excited when you sit down. They just look up and look through you. Yeah. And this is sort of off topic, but it reminded me of talking to a guy friend of mine who has lost a lot of his hair about how when he was in college and he had a full head of dark curly hair. He enjoyed walking around campus because he would, you know, every now and then like catch a young lady giving him the eye, checking him out. And he talked about how he's sort of gone through this mourning process that he feels when he walks around now. And that doesn't happen. Like no one, no one looks twice at him. Interesting. Yeah. Different aspects of our physical presence that indicate youth and fertility. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and over at the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia, Kathy Letty was writing about the same kind of thing. And I was actually astonished how, at how many personal essays there were just on this topic. Um, she, she said, quote, if we weren't invisible, if we saw normal looking women over 50 on television and in movies not playing grandmas, then perhaps women would feel more confident about 
saying no to cosmetic surgery. And it was interesting that she brought up just that visibility factor on screen as well, because there's this sense in women's day to day lives as they age of becoming gradually uh, invisible. And then if you look on screen, a lot of times women of a certain age are invisible there as well. And we're going to talk more about that when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. Okay, so if we're speaking more about pop culture and the way that women of a certain age are portrayed on screen, whether that's TV or film, typically, if we look way back at actresses in in older classic films, that whole topic sort of was treated as definitely a negative, and women were definitely fighting against the whole aging process. Yeah, especially if you look at movies where the central character is a woman over 40, such as Margot, played by Betty Davis in All About Eve, or Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard, or probably most iconically, Mrs. Robinson, played by an under 40, I believe she was 36 at the time, Mm -hmm. and Bancroft in The Graduate, a lot of it revolves around these women tragically fighting to hold on to their youth and also, by virtue of that, their sexual desirability. Right, and I think that the word tragic is such a big part of that. I mean, especially if you do think about Mrs. Robinson. It's just, she's this character that you, as the audience, are just meant to look at her and go, oh, God. Well, and she clearly hates her daughter Mm -hmm. for the fact that she still retains the beauty and the vitality that she feels was stolen from her. Right, exactly. And so as we move into the late 1970s, it's up until this time that basically women who are over 50 on screen are depicted as either asexual mothers or asexual spinsters or crazy or both. Yeah, and um, we found a lot of this information from a great paper by Rose White's published in 2010 in Sexuality and Culture called Changing the Scripts, Midlife Women's Sexuality in Contemporary U.S. Film. And she cited a 1997 study that looked at the top 100 grossing films from the 1940s through the 1980s. And this really breaks down this invisibility factor. It found that 25% of the central characters in those films were men over 35, compared to only 3% of the central characters were women over 35. Yeah, and in White's study, uh, she looked at 4,000 films released between 2000 and 2007 and found that only five of them portrayed a midlife female character engaging in any sort of romantic activity beyond a kiss. Only three of the films she looked at depicted the, quote, female gaze as opposed to the male gaze, but it's always used as a source of humor or discomfort or emotional pain. So even when a woman is displaying some sort of sexual desire, it's always played off as like, oh, isn't that cute? That's sad. 
Yeah, and you would rarely see their bodies in any state of undress unless you have the the classic Hollywood bed scene, the postcoital bed scene where somehow the sheets just magically come up <laughs> only to cover the guys uh, like up to his hip bones, but they somehow go all the way up to her clavicle. Those L-shaped sheets are really handy. I know they're they're, they're so hot in Hollywood. Um but if there is any implication of any nudity beyond that, then it's usually a comedic device because there still seems to be this discomfort with middle age or even post middle age sexuality in women. So, I mean, we've progressed a little bit in our storytelling in film to encompass more stories about women who might be post menopausal. But there's still, as White's study finds, pretty few and far between. And when it comes to the women that they focus on, it's even more telling that even though they might be affirmative of women's sexuality in midlife or later in life as a healthy part of life, but you only see white women who are usually also slim and conventionally attractive, often affluent, who are being portrayed. And these films that she looked at, it, it's not like they're doing a good job either challenging the typical older man, younger woman dynamic. I mean, especially if you look at things with if if they even try to introduce an older woman, younger man dynamic, that is also typically played for laughs or for sympathy. You know, old Samantha and Sex in the City dating hot young Smith or whatever. And it's like. It, it, these women are almost portrayed as being just pathetic characters. For instance, in the 2003 movie Something's Gotta Give, starring Diane Keaton and Jack Nicholson, it starts out with Diane Keaton being pursued by a much younger man and Jack Nicholson also dating Diane Keaton's daughter in the film. So he's dating a much younger woman. But the happily ever after in that movie is them ending up together because even still today I, I think it is rare to see in a movie something along the lines of a lost in translation where you have a much older Bill Murray pursuing a much younger Scarlett Johansson and that's totally fine and we find it emotionally evocative mm-hmm. but if say the roles were somehow reversed there's usually still a sentiment of much older woman pursuing a much younger man as being either a comedic device or she's more of a Mrs. Robinson kind of character or just pathetic or there's something wrong with him and she will be disposed of the older woman at some point and he will find someone age appropriate for him or vice versa. Right, because in all the movies that Rose Veitz surveyed, she found that of the movies that did portray an older woman being in a relationship of some kind with a younger man, none of them remained intact by the end of the movie. And while Whites and a couple of other papers on this topic point out that really post Something's Gotta Give in 2003, there have been more movies portraying this pretty common plot line of woman in midlife or postmenopausal, married, maybe single, who through a you know, variety of circumstances, maybe comedic, maybe dramatic, rediscovers her sexuality. And, and rediscovering that sexuality is usually seen as a good thing and and it's a healthy thing but it's still we're still seeing it through a very narrow kind of um portrayal because you still don't see just an say an average looking middle-aged woman right. with an average looking body or let's just you know certainly no diversity 
really whatsoever. Yeah, it's almost like filmmakers and producers are trying to just dip a toe into this topic and say, oh, well, we'll we'll give it a shot, but it has to be Diane Keaton. It's got to be Diane Keaton. And I love Diane Keaton. Oh, sure. And I enjoy Something's Gotta Give. But hey, Hollywood, Something's Gotta Give. Am I right? You're right, Kristen. And TV has figured it out. TV has kind of figured it out. Yeah, we have great characters on TV that would qualify as this women of a certain age group. Um, I know I started thinking about this. I have a ton of favorites. Claire Underwood, House of Cards, could be qualified as a woman of a certain age. And she's devious and sexy, too. Yeah, what is so great about her is she's not two-dimensional at all. She That woman is, and she's not there just to be evil. She's not there just to be sexy. She's not there just to be a plotter or someone taking advantage of others. She's all of these amazing things. She gets to be multifaceted, that character does. Um, I also love Brenda Lee Johnson from The Closer, Kira Sedgwick's character in that show. Um, Joan Campbell on Covert Affairs. Olivia Benson on uh, Law & Order SVU. And uh, long-time listeners of the podcast, you should not be surprised when I cite Madeline from La Femme Nikita that was on USA several years ago. She uh, she was one. B-A-B. How old was she supposed to be? Um, Probably in her 50s. Oh, wow. Yeah. On Nikita. Okay. Well, and it's interesting that you bring up Kira Sedgwick on The Closer, because that show is cited as a game changer in terms of because it was so successful mm-hmm. when it first came out. And since it was led by a woman over 40, that's when networks supposedly, you know, started thinking, oh, well, this can happen. And people will still watch it, even though it's about a woman who is over 40. And um, this is actually something that Jennifer Kishi wrote an entire blog series about over at Bitch called Women of a Certain Age uh, that I highly recommend you check out because she looks at women over 40 on TV and all sorts of from, from all sorts of angles. And just a couple of other women that I want to throw out. My favorite, Connie Britton. Love her. I love her portrayal. Even in Friday Night Lights, American Horror Story, and Nashville, she is interesting and thoughtful and still sexual mm-hmm. in all of them. And I also really enjoyed uh, Laura Dern in Enlightened on HBO. There was Laura Linney in The Big C, and of course Liz Lemon. Come on, come on. We got we got Liz and so many characters. On Orange is the New Black. And there are probably some fans as well of Cougar Town starring Courtney Cox. So it does seem like TV is a friendlier place for w- older women. Although yeah. I, I don't even like terming like women over 40 as being older because even that just seems so, so stuck in the past. Well, but it is a better place for a demographic, a section of the population that is invisible elsewhere. Exactly. Exactly. We could say. And in terms of these uh, characters that that uh, writers allow them to retain their sexuality in these TV shows and whatever, we should talk about real women and real women's sexuality. Um, there was a 2010 study out of the University of Texas that talked about women in their 30s and early 40s being significantly more sexual than younger women. And that includes having more intense and frequent sexual fantasizing and actually having more sex. 
And the theories behind this is that it all roots back to evolution, according to David M. Buss, who is one of the uh, researchers on this, that middle-aged women have higher sex drives because it's more challenging for older women to get pregnant. So when you're younger, if you want to get pregnant, you don't have to have sex as many times. So your sex drive doesn't necessarily need to compel you to, to do it. So the thinking is that older women's sex drive is ramped up, which was nature's way of ensuring that they would have enough sex to help ensure that they could continue getting pregnant. But I rose a really high skeptical eyebrow when I read this because you and I in other episodes have encountered plenty of studies just talking about younger women psychologically not being as comfortable maybe with sex, with their bodies, with sexuality as older women are. So I would feel like the more comfortable you are in your own skin and with sex and with sexuality, the more your sex drive would be ramped up, right? It's not necessarily an evolutionary thing. Well, I mean, I'm sure plenty of people would argue that, too. A lot of people hate, like, evolutionary biology because all of the answers is always are always, well, because pregnancy. And clearly there is a lot more going on in someone's sex drive than just what our early human ancestors were yeah, doing. Yeah, sure. But it's an interesting theory, and it, it does, you know, it, it got a lot of attention, I think, simply because of this idea that, Middle-aged women want to have sex all the time? What? 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 But we don't, but they aren't sexually desirable. Then what? Wait. Uh, oh. Oh. Yeah. Mm. And another surprising find related to uh, middle-aged women's sexuality came in a study from the American Sociological Association that looked at fidelity and infidelity in middle-aged women and who they're having sex with and found that middle-aged women who cheat on their husbands do it with sex on the brain, but not with the goal of leaving their spouse, that they, they just want the sexual excitement. They want to get theirs, but they don't necessarily want to leave the comfort of their relationship. Now, grain of salt with this study finding, because there's very well some selection bias going on since the participants were recruited from AshleyMadison.com, which is a social network specifically set up for people who want to have sex outside of their marriages. So it would make sense that people going to Ashley Madison might be fine with their marriage as, you know, a companionate unit, emotional fulfillment, whatever, but just want some sex on the side. But it just offers additional evidence that regardless of the invisibility that women might face as they age, either just in their day-to-day lives as they walk down the street or from what we see reflected on small screens and large screens, our sex lives, even even if desirability by social standards might wilt some, I don't even like to use that word, wilt, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not reflective of what's happening on our insides. Right. And so talking about it, the whole visibility issue, talking about women's sexuality, it's like, why is it a surprise to you, culture at large, that women are still sexual beings at any stage of their lives? My answer? Because we still tend to associate women with childbirth and pregnancy. And that is 
the role. And so once that is over, mm-hmm. then it's women. I think even still today, women are it's, it's progressing. Absolutely. But women having sex for the sake of having sex is still a relatively new concept. Yeah, regardless of age. Exactly. Um, But to close out the podcast, there is one woman who is not feeling as sexy as she used to, and she's totally fine with that. But she also has made a point of embracing and naming her age as she has gotten older, and that is Gloria Steinem, who recently turned 80 and was telling the New York Times that, yeah, her libido is not what it once was, but that she finds it freeing. She was like, there's so much more brain space. This is opened up now, and my head is wonderful. Yeah, but I mean, she's an important character to talk about because, like Kristen said, she is making sure to point out her age. 40 years ago, she did tell a reporter, this is what 40 looks like. Uh, she had a, this is what 50 looks like party. Um, she then had a, this is what 80 looks like party, along with Rabbi Arthur Wasco uh, in a benefit for a center in Philadelphia. And so, yeah, I mean, I think she's an important character to talk about in terms of visibility of older women, the fact that you can still be amazing and have a very full and colorful life and that you're not getting shoved into a closet and forgotten about. Yeah, I, what jumped out to me in that New York Times article Gail Collins wrote was that quote, very few people have aged as publicly because she really emerged as the face. And as Gail Collins talks about, partially because it is a conventionally attractive face mm-hmm. of the second wave feminist movement. And so a lot of people have really intently watched her aging process. And, you know, she today she dyes her hair, which she openly says, but she hasn't had any kind of cosmetic surgery And she says she stays active just because she travels all the time. And I really appreciate the fact that she has always been open and honest about her age. And this is coming from someone who I can't even tell you right now, Caroline, how old my mother is precisely because it I have an idea, but it it was shrouded in secrecy when I was a child because she didn't she never wants to be considered an old woman. Yeah, well, there's definitely a shame there. I mean, my mother's the same way. Uh, when she turned a certain age, we were not allowed to say the number. She said, you can wish me a happy birthday all you want, but I will kill you if you say the number. So we, Caroline and I, will not tell listeners how old our mothers are. Because <laughs> if our mothers find out, even still, we might not reach a certain age. That's right. <laughs> In that case. <laughs> so now I hope to hear from... Some listeners of a certain age. Women, have you felt the aging process? And guys, too, what is it like? Is this invisibility factor something that you do feel or that you've noticed is maybe going away? I I hope that it's getting better the more that we see women on screen who are over 40. Uh, Let us know your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at Podcast. And messages on Facebook. And we have a couple of messages to share with you right now. So we've got a couple of letters here from our episode, Perfect, that's in quotes, Teeth. This is from Chris, who writes, I really enjoyed your podcast on Perfect Teeth. 
I'm a 30-year-old married middle-class mother of two and have always been incredibly self-conscious about my teeth because they're far from perfect. My family didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up, so when my permanent teeth grew over my baby teeth, there wasn't much my parents could do to fix them. As an adult, I'm still learning to accept that my teeth are part of what makes me unique and they don't make me any less of anyone else. My amazing wife helps me realize this every day. While I'm not as self-conscious as I was as a teenager, I would still love to get braces at some point in my life. I'm too aware of the stares I get from strangers and the assumptions about my intelligence. However, now that I have children, any cosmetic dental work would most likely go to my kids so they don't have to be ashamed of their smile like I was of mine. Keep up the great work, and I love the podcast. So thanks for writing in, Chris. And I have a letter here from Lou. He says, I'm a regular listener to your podcast and love your topics and delivery style. You're both warm and funny, making your listeners feel like old friends. Well, thank you, Lou. Lou has a really important story to tell. He says, "Um, I must confess to having been judgmental of people's teeth in the past. However, in recent years, that's all changed. My son is a 12-year-old cancer survivor who received radiation to the right side of his jaw at the age of one. The side effects of radiation have made his face grow unsymmetrical, as well as his teeth being seriously malformed. Some of his teeth did not grow in fully, and many are crooked. Braces are not an option, as the teeth that are fully formed have no roots. Visits to the dentist make me cry on the inside, as he takes incredible care of the teeth he does have, so as to keep them as long as possible. He never shows his teeth when he smiles, but is still super confident, and he doesn't let it worry him. I have learned that one of the side effects of certain cancer treatments can be very detrimental to teeth as they cause lack of saliva, making oral hygiene extremely difficult. I know many survivors with oral problems as a direct result of surviving cancer. This experience has taught me to think twice and not judge when I encounter a person with less than perfect teeth. There are many reasons that their oral perfection may be out of their control. So thank you so much for sharing that story, Lou. And thanks to everybody who's written to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, which also includes our sources, so you can follow along with us, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 